0: We broadcast on the sovereign land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kula nation. Sovereignty was ceded; it was never ceded, and a treaty never signed.
1: This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis, That's and current man. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to late 30am.
2: Your
0: good morning. You're listening. You're, you are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning, Ella. How are you? And good morning, Claudia.
1: Good
3: morning. How are you doing? Morning.
0: Uh, thanks so much to Beyond Zero Emissions for their lovely show and lovely lead-in. How was How was your weekend, guys?
3: Busy for me. Um, so, yeah, on Friday, I was at a demonstration uh, for the Tamil family who were living in Biloela. Our listeners will probably be familiar with the case. Um, they were protesting out the front of the Supreme Court for um, Priya and Nardis and their two daughters, Kupika and Thuroun Kia. Um, and they were living in Biloela in Queensland um, before they were taken to an immigration detention centre in Melbourne in March 2018. Um, and they've been detained on Christmas Island since late last year. Um, So we were there to show support in a court case that was being held on Friday.
0: Was it a good turnout?
3: Uh, It was a good turnout, yeah. Unfortunately, when the um, Channel 7 news crew got there, the numbers had dissipated a little. I had to um, (laughs) hide them off to get an interview. But, Um, but, yeah, it was a really um, nice event um, despite the circumstances. We sang lullabies, uh, heard from a family friend and another man involved in the case. And how about you, Patty? What did you get up to?
0: Uh, I've been getting ready for going back to school time. It's uh Is that it's time of year. So yeah, on on Tuesday's orientation. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Another uni degree. I thought I I thought I was out, and they pulled me back in.
4: <laughs> what have you decided to go back and? I'm going to do uh,
0: journalism at RMIT, so that help me become a better radio announcer. <laughs>
4: Well, you've got a bit of experience behind you, so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how you build on that.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely going to be sitting in the front row trying to pull off that mature student look, <laughs> <laughs> raise my hand after every question.
4: <laughs> okay, so what have we got on the show today?
0: Uh, so at 8.15, we're going to speak to Emily Maguire, who is the CEO of the Domestic Violence Resource Centre. Um which is just based on Cardigan Street in Carlton, uh, and we're going to speak to her. Obviously, there's been a terrible crime that uh, took place in in uh, Queensland last week, um, but that's only just part of a of a culture of toxic toxic masculinity and domestic violence that uh, that needs to be changed in Australia. So it's going to be great to speak to Emily McGuire about that.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, it was a pretty big uh, week last week with uh, that um, that awful news and uh, the St Kevin's uh, School um, episode on uh, Four Corners talking about male culture as well and grooming in schools and sort of abuse. So, um, yeah, all sort of ties together if we're talking as a country about culture and the importance of respectful relations and people... Feeling safe.
0: Certainly, yeah.
3: Yeah, and I think, (coughs) sorry, excuse me, I think both stories, as you said, show that um, the problem isn't just the one perpetrator, it's also the culture as a whole Um, and this um, silence around issues. And even with the case in Queensland, the way it's been reported since, there's been a lot of um, controversy about that um, in terms of showing people's attitudes.
4: And also, I think, Patty, you picked up on some uh, language used by one of the. Police officers um, which sort of suggested that um, there might have been some victimization of
0: um, of the perpetrator yeah uh, and it, yeah that, that kind of language it does come up again and again when these when these big you know was the man driven too far there's always that suggestion, I don't, I don't even understand how it's still you know it's it's the 21st century, how he's still using these antiquated ideas.
3: Yeah, and a lot of the headlines haven't even said the father was the one who murdered them. They've just said the
4: father died.
0: Which with children. is um, <laughs>
3: a pretty
4: shocking lapse in um Facts. Sort of shifts the, um, the onus of responsibility, doesn't it? Yeah. Accountability. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, maybe we'll start this morning with a song. Uh, he's better in black with Thelma Plum.
3: And that was Thelma Plum, Better in Black. Uh, Next up, we're going to listen to an interview that Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR recorded with Maya Newell. Uh, Maya is the director of the documentary In My Blood It Runs. Um, I'm really excited to see this film, and I think everyone else is too, because I tried to see it on the weekend and it was all sold out. Um, And I'd actually hoped to get an interview with Maya, only to find out Annie had beat me to it. Um, But I'm glad she did, because it's a really wonderful interview, uh, the film follows Dujon, a young boy living near Alice Springs, and I'll leave it to the rest to Maya to tell us about.
5: Thanks for coming in and talking to you, Maya uh, Newell. Uh, your new film, In My Blood It Runs, I'll have to say, is one of the most uh, compelling films I've ever seen. Uh, it's actually set in, the, uh, in Alice Springs to begin with. Can you tell me a little bit about how this came about, this film? And, you know, as you talk, you'll be describing to people what's what it's about
6: yeah sure so when the film actually we we started filming maybe 2 or 3 3 years ago but the foundation in which the story began is a 10-year story. So I was invited, had the privilege to be invited by Aranda elders when I was 21 to make films alongside them about the empowering work that they're doing to educate their children in language and culture and identity. And that was with this organization called Akilira, which is a healing place where Nangaras, so traditional healers, can go and be supported in an intergenerational way to learn about their powers. Uh, ah, yes. which was very amazing. And over those years, I suppose, built the trust and went on this learning journey that enabled the intimacy that you see on screen of In My Blood It Runs. And I think it's worth saying, so the film follows a young Aranda Garoa boy as he's navigating an education system not built for him, welfare system out to remove him from his family uh in t- increasing scrutiny from the police, but really the story is about the love and care of his family and the fight that they are on tire, you know every day tire, tirelessly to support him and ground him in his aboriginal education, which is so often um, missing from our western education systems. Uh, we went on this very long journey it 's shot in this observational way, so you walk alongside him and really see the world through his. Um, his lens which you know for most Australians we don't often get that opportunity to really understand what it might be like to experience the world from a 10 year old you know First Nations child perspective. In approaching In My Blood It Runs I wanted to um, create we needed to ensure that that agency and the politics of representation that we uh, that we applied a very specific Um, structure and model of consultation around this film to ensure that people's identities in the film, people's representation was correct, was protected. And First Nations people have had their stories, um, misappropriated for centuries in this country. So what we did is we, um, sat around and we created this structure where the families in the film are the core our partners. They always had control over the way that they were being represented. We had a board of advisors made up of duan's grandmothers, great-grandmothers, elders, and everyone participated in this process where from early messaging stage all the way through to assembly, rough cut, fine cut, we held multi-day workshops where families were engaged in the process of filmmaking and allowed to direct how they felt the film Uh, We should manage the filmmaking process. And I think it is, just to bring it back to the intimacy that you see on screen, I really do put it down to that model of consultation, which meant that families always knew that at the end of the day, it was up to them whether, you know, a scene appeared in the film or not. And I think that we were able to film up close and personal, uh, because of that agency and control being, being um, with the family.
5: The uh, stuff to do with the uh, detention uh, system in the Northern Territory, as it were, uh, tel- was running along at the same time, really, isn't it? it really yeah,
6: we actually started filming when the allegations came out on Four Corners about children being tortured in uh, juvenile detention up at Dondale, like um, Dylan Voller. And I was with Dwan as he was watching the TV of that news report and I think as a country we remember that moment, we remember the shock and horror that in you know, a first world country like Australia we would be treating our First Nations children in this way under our care but when you sit with Dwan and watch the TV and see that from his perspective, here is a child who knows many people who are locked up who
5: his is
6: his auntie as, as seen in, in the film and that has very different resonance, uh, as he says why he reflects on that moment in the film. And he says, why are they treating them the same way they treat their enemies?
5: Yeah. um, Where did you get that footage? Because, you know, that carefully incised footage of enormous men and tiny boys is just so um, revealing. And it wasn't a lot. It was just enough.
6: Yeah, enough to trigger the memory of Australians too who did watch that footage. Many of us did. Um, I think that, you know, at the time we were filming, 100% of children in the Northern Territory Juvenile Justice System were Aboriginal. And I'm pretty sure that statistic has not changed much. Uh, The film actually contours the timeline of the Royal Commission uh, and there has not been so much done even now, um, including some of the uh demands by that commission to raise the age of criminal responsibility. So we're one of the only Western countries in the world that think it's OK to lock up a 10-year-old child and to support that family. And, you know, that's a child who is asking for help uh, and we... Our punitive system puts them in jail. That's our way of helping them. The International Human Rights Standard is is 14, and our country is in the process of deliberating whether we should raise the age. Um, So, yeah, that's one of the issues that the film is taking to Australia and trying to um, influence that decision being made by our leaders right now. In fact, on our website, you can write to your Attorney General directly through a very simple tool and tell them that you think 10-year-old is... should be, you know, in classrooms, in playgrounds with their families, not in jail.
5: Well, one of the key elements in your film is that uh, uh, it puts uh, side by side the dissonance between the the, uh, mainstream white establishment, Anglo establishment, versus the uh, experience of an Aboriginal boy who is a born Aboriginal First Nations activist. There's no two ways about (laughs) it. And... uh, uh, he's proud of himself and he's perplexed and he is also not a stupid person
6: yeah you know when i met duan i met him on a nagra camp so that's a traditional healer in Aranda language and he's this witty intelligent hilarious cheeky you know exuberant child which is and he's really you know your leader through this story he holds your hand but i just thought He's just at this beautiful age where he's on the cusp of um, becoming cognizant of the more complex issues that are facing our country, and he sort—he has this sort of poetic wisdom in the way he articulates that—that that really just cuts through your soul as a listener and as a watcher. And I thought, you know, what a beautiful conduit for the Australian public to be able to sit with him and learn some really simple truths in many ways, but ones that us as adults and as a society seem to have forgotten
5: but also uh, he's been characterized by the uh, mainstream as a, a bad person as a waster as a nobody person it's quite clear that's what that was the trajectory that they were intending for him
6: yeah and I think that the film shows that like here is a very intelligent young child who is actually not an exception you know every a First Nations child and every child is incredibly you know clever and exceptional in their own way uh, yet he feels like a failure at school and he's only measured by certain western standards and so you know he said to me um, his great-grandmother actually said to me early on in this process she said Maya we're always trying to get Uh, they're always telling us to make our children ready for school, but when are we going to make schools ready for our children? And I think that that really cuts to the heart of this film. It says, you know, we expect these children to be assimilated into our systems, but when are we going to change our systems to incorporate, respect, teach their identities that makes them feel validated and allow space for them to succeed?
5: I, have, I couldn't believe the last part of that film where he stands up, he's hanging off the car and it's getting into silhouette cause, uh, and it's so quintessentially being in uh, the wild of Australia really and he turns back and he's saying I just want to be an Aboriginal. I just want to be an Aboriginal and I thought that is such a, fo- a powerful statement because what's being said to Aboriginal people is you're not allowed. You're not allowed to be. And it's not even something that people should be aspiring to.
6: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, he says, I I just want to live a normal life. I just want to be me. And what I mean by me is to be an Aboriginal. And, yeah, I think we have um, a war against First Nations people's identities and we have since colonisation it's about time that we listen to the grandmothers, listened to children like Duane, who are saying, "Hey, why can't I learn my language and my culture in my education like every other child in this country?"
5: I was really floored by that sequence where the teacher is teaching them about Captain Cook. I thought, "What hasn't there been a change? Don't they realise that something's different here?" You know?
6: Yeah. So there is a really significant scene in the book, in in the film where uh, the children are being taught history, which promotes this idea that Captain Cook is this hero that came and founded and discovered Australia. The book was printed in 1951, uh, which um, obviously has a very particular worldview, but it actually connects with the narrative that we still hear on Australia Day and that a lot of our leaders still use, is that, you know, Australia began... Uh, when Captain Cook arrived and that at the very best, you know, erases the histories of, of so many people who were here beforehand and Duane, in that moment when you sit with him in the classroom and you see that lesson from his perspective, you feel what that might be like to be a young person who whose whole history is eradicated um, every day in the systems that are meant to uplift them.
5: Which is interesting because I guess uh, the disrespect that he's shown, he, he also feels a great deal of disrespect for the uh, system that he's struggling against or struggling within.
6: Yeah, and I think you know, in the film, we're trying to not point the finger at any, no. you know, individual teacher or any individual system. In in a way, it's sort of just sitting with Duan, seeing how all of these systems are interconnected, and are telling him the same message over and over again: is that you know, you don't fit here, you're not good enough. And how how would you react if you were a young person? You know, and I think that um, in if you if we take a step out and look at the systems issue as and the issues and the policy um, throughout time that have brought us to where we are, Um, it's also a reflection on every person in this country who is a settler on this land and um, we should all be asking the question of how can we use our privilege to support the first people of this country.
3: And that was Maya Newell, the director of In My Blood, It Runs, a documentary film that was released this weekend. Uh, It's currently showing at Nova, um, but there's set to be some more screenings, and you can even hold your own screening if that's something you're interested in doing. And now we're going to listen to a recording from the National Climate Emergency Summit, which was held in Melbourne the week before last. Um, So I attended a session uh, where there were a lot of local councillors speaking Um, about what Australia can do next, Um, as really moved by what Trent McCarthy, um, the Greens councillor at the City of Darwin, said.
7: I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nations and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, and to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and that the fight for climate justice is intimately linked uh, for the fight for Indigenous rights around the world. Um, my name is Trent McCarthy. I'm the first, I put, had the privilege, in fact, of putting the first uh, climate emergency declaration of any government in the world on the 5th of December 2016. And I, is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember that date because it's my daughter's uh, seventh birthday. And she's now 10, so it's three years ago. Um, that's how I count my years, by how, how long it was since we declared the climate emergency and when I made that promise to her that I was really going to step up my game. I've been a local councillor since 2008, elected literally within weeks of uh, of Shane being elected to the ACT, and there's no race between Darabin City Council and the ACT government. I'll just let you know that, Um, although maybe there should be, Um, because one of the things about local governments is that we love to lead and we love to go out on a limb, and uh, many of you, I know, live in communities where you want your governments to lead, Um, and I want to share with you some of the things that happen when a government takes that position and actually leads. One of the things that's been really interesting about Darabin's journey over the last three years is the fact that we have had to look at not only making the declaration but actually how we sustain the program of action that's required to meet the emergency that we face. So it's not just about making a declaration, it's actually about saying what are the practical steps of change that are going to make a difference within the powers that we have And local government doesn't have all the powers. I wish it had a lot more powers. Um, But we've tried to exercise those powers as far as we can. So in the corner there, you can see some of our pensioners. And they are some of the 4,000 households that we're installing solar on over a four-year period. We're doubling renewable energy in Daravan over a four-year period from 18 megawatt hours to 36 megawatt hours. Now that... That's really important because these households are particularly pensioner households, low-income households, people who have a fear often of the rising energy bills that they face and therefore um, aren't able to cool their houses during heat waves and then they become vulnerable to heat island effect, which we have a lot of in the city of Darabin. So we want to make sure that those people can stay cool during heat waves and the way we do that is putting solar on their roofs with no upfront costs. And for us, that's been one of the most profound things is actually turning people who may have not engaged in the climate debate at all, may have not even had a, a rich and broad understanding of what's going on at the global level to be part of the action in their own homes and, in fact, on their own roofs. And the level of pride that people have when they say, I'm doing something for my grandkids and I'm keeping myself safe, um, has been profound. And we talk about them um, as, as our honours, because they are mostly Italian grandmothers in reservoir that led the charge in this. So we talk about it as the honour effect. Um, the other thing that we've done at, at Darabin is, is really sort of ask the question: How do we? Oh, that up again? How do we make sure that we can measure and be accountable for the action programme that we've put in place? And so this is actually about putting it, not only a climate emergency plan, but putting it in our council plan, making sure that we have measurable targets, things that our community can hold us accountable for. And if your council has declared a climate emergency and they're just on the start of this journey, they they may not get it right every step of the way, but as long as they keep going, they'll be doing exactly the sorts of things that Shane was talking about before. We also have taken a philosophical position, which is that we believe it's our responsibility as a government and the responsibility of all governments to provide maximum protection for our citizens, for people that travel through our area, that study, um, for all living life, uh, everything within our community needs to be provided with that maximum protection. It is such an important concept that we cannot accept the rhetoric that is coming from the Prime Minister at the moment that we somehow will adapt. We're not going to grow gills. That's not going to happen. We're not going to learn how to have... Um, the ability to withstand the fire events that we've experienced. We need to change how we live and we need to respond to the climate emergency at the local and the global global level. I just want to share with you a little story though, and this, for me, typifies what happens when a council declares a climate emergency and how it can actually go into that mobilisation mode. And we're really only at the start of that journey and we have to maintain it. There are 79 local councils in Victoria and they are all part of what are climate, we're called climate alliances or greenhouse alliances. And I'm really pleased to say that one of the things that we put in our climate emergency plan was to say, if we're going to go to 100% renewable energy in Darabin, then how can we help other councils do the same? And last year, we managed, after a good couple of years of work, um, to get 48 local councils to come together and collectively switch their energy, their, renewable, their electricity consumption, to renewable energy. Most of them are going to 100%. For most of those councils, they didn't have a renewable energy target to begin with. They have not declared a climate emergency, but they're taking that significant action. And now we're saying, right, you're taking that action, now you need to declare an emergency if you haven't done already. Although many have. In fact, there are now 88 local councils in Australia, including the ACT Government, that have declared climate emergencies and we are part of a movement of over 1,350 around the world government jurisdictions that have declared climate emergencies. This movement is at the start and it will only continue to grow. In relation to this project, though, what has been profound is the fact that we've managed to effectively switch um, the same as 87,000 cars or 47,000 households um, from fossil fuels to renewables. And for me, that's about mobilisation, not just talking rhetoric, not just the sort of stuff that we hear from some of our politicians in Canberra, not the ones in the ACT government, but in the other house. is actually mobilisation and when we had to do this, we had a thousand people that we had to convince across Victoria to make this happen. We have so much more work to do though and that's why the united front of local councils going forward is so important to Australia's climate emergency action. I want to share with you, because obviously we've had a couple of pictures of Greta today, um, but one of the things that happened is in in August 2018, Greta Thunberg did her first strike at the the front of her parliament. At the same time in our own parliament in Victoria, um, the state government adopted the new Planning and Environment Act. And if you do a word search of that act and you search the word climate, not one appearance of the word climate appears in that piece of legislation. And yet, this is the piece of legislation that directs and drives about 80% of local government decision making. So, for councillors, the frontline work now is the fact that we do not have the powers that we need to communi- keep our community safe. So whilst a 15-year-old girl was able to take and start a massive movement, we need governments to match the strength of that student movement and keep going, keep going fast, and deliver that relentless optimism and that radical collaboration that, uh, that world leaders have been promising but not delivering for the decades past. Thank you.
3: And that was Trent McCarthy, the uh, council member for Darabin. Um, I was really keen to play that this morning because later today, just before 8, I'm going to be speaking with Bo Lee from the Victorian Local Government Association um, about some training they have coming up uh, to become a local council member.
6: We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we here?
4: Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly... Trying to chip
3: away at regulation. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them.
1: Earth Matters plays at 11 a.m. Sunday and 6:30 a.m. Wednesday. Turn your dial to
4: 855 a.m. or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided. The nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel
6: rods removed from only one out of four reactors.
8: Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out.
3: That was The Seeker from Sunny Boys. And I just wanted to take a moment to talk about some events coming up as part of the Melbourne Fashion Festival. Uh, We talked a little about sustainable fashion a couple of weeks ago. Um, And there's going to be a series of free interactive educational fashion shows and upcycling sessions. Uh, The title is Fast Fashion. That's Fashion, F-A-S-H-U-N, 2.0, 2.0. Um, they're going to have a exhibition, um, an exhibition, an art-making and runway show, and a low-sensory, quiet crafting day. Um, that's all being held at the end of... Uh, sorry, the beginning of March and the end of February.
0: And uh, I think we'll have some alternative news. We haven't done that in a few weeks, but there's a little topic that we want to talk about. Uh, not a little topic, a big one. Domestic violence. Um, so this, t- this uh, comes with a bit of a content warning um, that we will be t- discussing those kind of distressing t- topics and I know that it's a lot to process first thing on a Monday morning so if you if, if you're not feeling up to it you might want to tune out for the next 15 minutes but if you are experiencing domestic violence and want to speak with someone you can call the women's crisis line on one 811 811 or you can call Lifeline on 131-114 that's the 24 hour crisis line
9: so know about it, some don't.
0: The national attention is on domestic violence at the moment after the murder of Hannah Clark and her three children, Alia, Liana and Trey last week. When these crimes occur, we we tend to ask ourselves as a community, why? Why would a person do such a thing? And most of the coverage will blame some special quality of evil in the perpetrator, or else mental health will be used as a scapegoat. The worst case of speculation that we heard regarding these murders was by Detective Inspector Mark Thompson, who asked, Is this an issue of a woman suffering significant domestic violence and her and her children perishing at the hands of the husband? Or is it an instance of a husband being driven too far by the issues he suffered by certain circumstances into committing acts of this form? So you have to ask yourself, why again? Why are we still blaming women and children for their own murders? The best piece of journalism I read reflecting on these recent murders was written by Dr Sue Hewitt bell who was a social worker and researcher, with over 30 years of practice working with domestic violence survivors as well as perpetrators. She did not focus on the violent details of the crime, like so much of the coverage did, but the culture of toxic masculinity that forms the entitled attitudes that allow these crimes to occur. She writes... Many women that I've worked with say that they are frequently asked the question, why don't you just leave? They comment that they do not hear people asking domestically violent men, why don't you stop being disrespectful and abusive? But when we ask ourselves as a society such questions, the reaction we get is hashtags like not all men. There is a lack of personal responsibility among men when it comes to the issues of toxic masculinity. Dr. Hewitt-Bell finishes her article by addressing violent men. If you're a man who uses violence and coercive control in your intimate partner relationship, make a choice to change. Pick up the phone and ring 1-800-RESPECT, or call your local health centre and enrol in a men's behaviour change program or parenting program. And at the same time, it's up to all men to take responsibility for their behaviour. And if you see something in yourself that you that you don't like in your behaviour towards women or towards anyone there's there's therapy services available to you so that's just my two cents on the topic guys did you did you see anything in the coverage that
3: uh yeah i've heard a lot and i i think the one uh improvement i've seen is the backlash to the reporting um of the case um so i think in the past it's almost uh, it hasn't been picked up or it's been taken for granted whereas i feel like this time people have really upped their back up um, and they're really taking um, the news and the media uh, to charge, and uh, yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And uh, and around uh, around the murder of women, uh, the when police say you know don't walk through dark parks at night as well, I've seen sort of backlash to those comments as well, which is which is good.
3: Yeah, it's pretty um, shocking that comment from the police officer. I actually hadn't heard that one. Um,
4: actually coming from the police themselves. I think he stepped down from the inquiry. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So he should. He regretted his phrasing of the yeah. comment. Yeah.
3: And I think that's the thing. A lot of the time it's not a conscious thing. It's these um, beliefs or ideas that have been so deeply entrenched. Yeah. Um, and you don't see the effect of them.
0: Because it's not like there's a book that's written, you know, how to be a misogynist, but it's more of the culture that we grow yeah. up in. Yeah.
3: And this idea of putting the responsibility on women or victims to make sure they're not a victim, rather than on perpetrators.
0: And Claudia, they? you were telling me before that uh, that Hannah Clark had actually taken all all the right steps. You know, you know what everyone's told to do in these situations to leave the family home, and she was and she was feeling very empowered by that.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, friends of um, Hannah had uh, sort of, I suppose, taken on. The role of speaking for her in in her absence, um, to just just share how, how strong she was, how um, uh, proactive she'd been in looking after herself and her children, and a couple of the posts that um, they shared from her, she'd just written a few weeks ago. One is, I'm a strong, strong woman. I don't sit around feeling sorry for myself, nor will I ever... Let anyone mistreat me again, she wrote. Uh, I don't respond to people who dictate to me or try and bring me down. I am a survivor, not a victim. I am in control of my own life and there is nothing I can't achieve. My girls will grow up to be strong women that understand their worth. So, yeah, this was a a person who recognised the, you know, Severe problem that was in the relationship. She removed herself from it. I don't think, from what we've heard to date, that she could have done any more. Um, yet this horrific uh, crime has occurred, and it does it does beg both those questions: why Why is it happening? Um, but even in even in a situation where the woman has uh, taken those steps to um, to protect herself and her family, but also is it necessary always for that onus to take the proactive action um, to fall on the person that's being hurt rather than the person that's causing the hurt?
0: Exactly. So those those numbers again that we said at the start of the uh, news were the Women's Crisis Line, 1800 811 811, and... Lifeline, which is the 24-hour crisis line, 131-114. And for men who find themselves uh, using uh, domestic violence, 1800 respect is the Men's Referral Centre, or you can call your local health centre. Uh, now we'll play a song. This is Always Remember by Dreaming Now.
8: Open eyes to see ancestors, ask them many questions. What are these lessons? I compressed upon our addresses. fuels, trial, addiction guesses. Anyone's best guesses now they got generations seeking mass convalescence. Eucalyptus, widow bar, DBS, shepherds, totems taken with no conscience or questions. No concept or consciousness of things before the present. Vacuous and empty like the wind swept desert. Harrowing howls under the moon, present in the noon sunrise. To change the present, we arrange trauma laden. Generations feathered, but the focus to be better is by colonial resin. Fermented in these strange weathers, some seeming to get stuck in quad miles. Vision 27, but original lines always remembered hold together in the now. As we hold on to forevermore treasures, we always remember our. Please remember why, forevermore. frames claimed of our name change we arrange strange ways submersed in haze gray upon halcyon days half unseen in the maze that's the two ways left with the loop and skip frames top conditions formulated wild renditions play victims in written cinematic systems but they got a dome messed up land covered in division wild decisions, a carnage of innocent Fixing why just sit and wait it for a minute spirit get to floating up beyond metropolis this river locomotion hear the trickling. The pain beyond the hope pocus focus open heart sent to the source of and devotion. From eons before to the very present moment, I just sit and analyze. We're acquainted, and scope, but I'm still here, trying to stay blessed. Stand strong and spy. Stresses trickle down and conquest. Another warrior woman. Just trying to get rest on this quest. The wealth, close eyes, focus and catch breath. Open fire. Attaining ashes from the sacred path. with a life dripping down. Create the spirit law. Yes. We always remember why. Always remember. Yeah, we always remember why. forevermore. Yeah, We always remember why. Always remember. Yeah, we always remember why. Forevermore. Always remember. Ancestors. All the spirit
1: in the land.
8: Naranang, Naranang.
3: And now we're joined in the studio by Bo Lee. Bo is the Senior Policy Advisor with Victorian Local Government Association and he's here to talk to us about some upcoming training. Welcome, Bo. Hi, thank you. Thanks for joining us early on a Monday morning. Not a problem, not a problem.
10: It's a great day. <laughs>
3: Alright, so can you tell us about the upcoming election candidate information and training sessions that are being held over the next month or so?
10: Certainly. Um, As uh, some of your listeners might know, um, local government or councils have mandatory four-year election cycles and the next uh, election is in October this year. Um, And leading up to that, we're offering a range of training sessions for uh, prospective candidates, those who are interested in running for council, or those who just want to find out and just see what council's all about, maybe go and help out their friends who might be running for council. So we have sessions coming up for both um, women-specific training, but also we have just general training where it's non-gender-specific where everyone can come along. Uh, we're going to kick off those. The ones for women have already started, uh, but the ones for um, the generic um, candidate information sessions, they're going to kick off uh, in early March.
3: Excellent. And what kind of skills will people be learning at these sessions?
10: So the sessions will cover the basics of local government, uh, the roles and responsibility of councillors and what council is all about um, and also some of the skills and attributes they might want to think about before they run for council uh, as well as things like time requirements and the various skills you might want to pick up um, once you do get elected.
3: And um, what are the roles and responsibilities of a council member?
10: So it's an interesting it's an interesting question because um, councillors are members of the community. There is no qualification to be a councillor. Anyone can be a councillor so long as you live in the municipality that you want to be uh, a councillor of. the roles and responsibilities are predominantly described in the Act called the Local Government Act, uh, and there is a new Act that's about to come in, but we can talk about it a bit later on. But under the current Act, um, the councillors are there to uh, make decisions on behalf of the community. So um, think of it uh, like perhaps on the Island school council, or perhaps on a board of management of a sporting club, maybe, but on a much bigger role, you know, a council-wide role, Um, you're looking at things like how do you allocate um, resources and and dollars for things like childcare services maybe, or do we need to upgrade that particular pavilion to, um, you know, increase um, female participation in sports, all those sort of things are very important at local government level.
3: And is there a kind of person who's particularly suited to being a council member? Or?
10: No, I mean, as I said, there's no qualification. Uh, you can be a councillor uh, and, uh, um, you know, I was a councillor before. Um, the sort of qualifications I think uh, people might want to think about are, do you have a passion for your community? Do you want to make things better for your community? And what sort of things do you believe in? What sort of values you can draw on? And some of the skills um, people already have. So, like I said, if you're, uh, you know, on the board of a, a netball association or netball club, uh, you might you already have, have a good understanding of how to perhaps apply for grants or liaising with other sporting clubs to get the best use of your facilities and so forth. And these sort of skills are tra- readily transferable to become a councillor.
3: And um, how long does the process take? So you mentioned the next elections are in October, is that right?
10: Yeah, October 24, so it's the fourth Saturday of every year, oh, sorry, every four years. Um, uh, For City of Yarra, um, there are what they call attendance elections, so you have to physically turn up at an election booth like you do for state and federal politics, um, federal elections. For other councils like um, um, Darabin, for example, uh, it is postal elections, so you get an envelope with the candidates and you uh, mark the boxes according to your preferences. Um, That Again, that might change depending on the how um, the new... Uh, bill uh, which is called the local government bill um that has passed the lower house uh is currently sitting before the upper house in state parliament uh probably get debated um in the first week of march and if that goes through that might become uh, effective um, for the 2024, uh, 2020 elections for this year, okay. um, and then when that happens, uh, it may be uh, all attendance, uh, all post voting. So you all, everyone gets a postal envelope as opposed to physically turn up in a booth.
3: Okay, so that's the key element of this new act, or that's are there other one
10: aspect of it. Okay. Um, there are quite a few aspects of it, but um, because it hasn't really passed yet, I can't really say too much sure, about it yeah. because <laughs> things might change. Um, but it might require, for example, one of the things that um, the new act uh, talks about is um, prospective candidates have to go through a mandatory training process um, so that they actually know what council is all about before they nominate. And after they get elected, they go through like an induction process. So they go through understanding the range of services that councils uh, offer um, a typical council can offer up to 100 adult services, uh, so I talked about childcare before, aged care, sporting grounds, art and festivals, um, you name it, councils do a lot of them.
3: Excellent. And so, theoretically, someone attending these sessions could run in the next, the upcoming elections, or they um, be pushing it a little. We <laughs> can't really say that because sure.
10: um, the the Act hasn't really passed yet. Yep. Um, i guess, regardless of what happens, uh, it's always a great idea to actually come to a session to actually understand it first before one considers putting their hand up for elections. Or, as I said earlier, um, you know, if I want to help my friend out, um, just knowing what's going on so I can help with their campaign a little bit better. Uh, sure. because it's, um, it's a grassroots level of government and it's really, really important.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a level one. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned there are some sessions catering particularly to women.
10: That's right. Women. So um, we'd received um, money from local government Victoria, which is part of Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> um, and we also received um, uh, money from the Office for Women. And our... Um, Particular campaign to help women get elected is called Local Women Leading Change. And we have been running information sessions throughout last year to various parts of Victoria. So we went to places like Horsham and um, East Gippsland and places like that. Um, and that's to, intru- that's a women specific training because what we realized that is that um, women are underrepresented in, uh, Elected council, elected councillors in Victoria. At the moment, that number is run about 37%. Uh, so 37% of councillors, uh, in Victoria are women. Um, there are about 617, there are 617 councillors in Victoria at the moment because we had the unfortunate case of Casey Council getting sacked, as you probably heard about last week. And, uh, late last year, we had South Gippsland Council got sacked. So the number of councillors has gone down because they've been replaced by administrators. Um, but it also meant that, um, councillors and women councillors are proportionally um, uh, not as well represented Um, so we want to increase that to 50-50 by 2025 uh, (laughs) but we're hoping to do it this year um, to get more women to local government because uh, we know from um, even from um, the Royal Commission to Family Violence that government done a few years ago that one of the reasons for um, women experiencing family violence is that they're not in um, decision-making capacities and mm. uh, they're not in, represented well in leadership positions and this is one visible form where women can take up their leadership position to be an elected leader in their community uh, and bring a different perspective around the council table.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we hear a lot about women being underrepresented in government and it makes sense to start with local government. That's right,
10: that's right. I mean, councils are, um, councils as organisations, they um, employ a significant number of women um, more so in areas where there is, um, you know, things like aged care assistance and uh, childcare attendance and those kind of things. But increasingly, they're in local, in leadership positions. So we have a number of women in uh, as CEOs of local councils. So again, um, Yarra City Council has a women CEO, Moreland, Darabin. They all have women CEOs, and a number of mayors uh, also uh, are women as well. So. Uh, the current mayor of Darabin, again, um, the current mayor of yara they're all women. Um, so there are a number of women in those leadership positions, and they serve as role models for young women and, and women of all ages um, yeah. in local government.
3: Yep, times are changing.
10: Absolutely. All
3: right. And just quickly, how can people attend these sessions and get involved? Are so the, they, do they cost money? Where do they okay, so <laughs> the,
10: the good thing is they are free of charge. You've just got to uh, invest yeah. a couple of hours <laughs> of your time. That's all there that is. Uh, the best thing to do is actually go to our website. So is the three Ws, vlga.org.au. Look under events and training. <clears throat> Pardon me. And all the dates and venues and details are up there. Um The other other way to look at it is to get in touch with your local council, say, look, I understand the council elections are coming up. Uh, Will you be running any candidate information sessions and how do I register myself to attend?
3: All right, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem,
10: Ella.
11: I would never let my tears dry, and never let my tears dry. The only time that I was right. About my friends, but I can't see them. I don't know who they are, but I can see footprints and tire tracks from some car. Now that some family back has got me thinking they left when I was hurt, because whenever I'm drowning.
4: Environment Centre and Wildlife of the Central Highlands have started an email action for the threatened Greater Glider. Over 25% of the glider's habitat has been burnt in the fires, and 90% of areas set aside for protection by the government last year have also burned. Yet their habitat is still being logged in the Central Highlands. Go to gecko.org.au to send an email to government ministers to call for protection of all remaining Greater Glider habitat. Hoongare Environment Centre Office is a 3CR supporter. In neurodevelopment at Monash University and Beth is spearheading the Magnet Project which is being conducted at Monash exploring autism and ADHD genetics and neurodevelopment. Welcome, Beth.
12: Hi there. How are you going?
4: Hi. Um, It's lovely to have you speaking with us this morning. Thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, no worries. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of the project you're working on at present, um, can you tell us what is neurodiversity?
12: Yeah, so it's this idea that um, lots of us have um, lots of different strengths and weaknesses in terms of our thinking, um, and for some people, um, which we call typical development or um, or neurotypical, um, we're people that might be, um, you know, otherwise unaffected by day-to-day traits that we have, but then there are other people who may be neurodiverse, who may um, have things like hyperactivity or um, anxiety or um, sensory-seeking behaviours and this idea that we all have them to some degree um, and it's just uh, can be how much they um, interfere with our lives or are a real strength for us and that we've all got these different strengths and weaknesses.
4: Is that where the spectrum comes in, that we're sort of all on the spectrum somewhere but
12: yeah, different people
4: so... have a different degree of... Um, Certain behaviours or strengths or weaknesses?
12: Yeah, so for the autism spectrum um, in particular, uh, the category of autism is so broad, there are lots of different symptoms that comprise autism, and each individual has their own makeup. And not only that, but there's also a spectrum in terms of um, cognitive function. So, what we mean by that is some people may have um, additional things like intellectual disability, and other people might be at the higher end, might have very high IQ. Um, so it, it sort of captures this range of symptoms and, and um, brain function.
4: So it's actually a very individual
12: thing. Yeah, it is. And it makes it um, uh, very difficult for clinicians and families to sort of decide what might be the best treatment and outcome at the moment. So what we're doing um, as part of the MAGNET project is trying to find neater subtypes that make it easier for us to predict which... Um, support or services or treatment might be best for the child or for the individual and what the um, the long term prognosis will be.
4: And perhaps it might be um, helpful for listeners um, mm. who aren't familiar with what you do to run through the the current state of affairs. Apparently it takes about three and a half years to uh, diagnose yeah. um, these yeah. things, which is an extraordinarily long period of time, particularly when you're talking about a child's core development?
12: Yeah, so um, at the moment, um, best practice for diagnosis for autism in particular is um, you see your GP or, you know, problems might be flagged by the classroom or you might yourself have concerns about your child's development and then you'll get referred to a GP and then you'll see a paediatrician and then a psychologist and um, a speech pathologist and together those three, in best practice, it doesn't have to always go this way, um, but uh, those three clinicians will come together to um, make a recommended diagnosis and ultimately it's the paediatrician that signs it off. Um, So there's a lot of back and forth um, there between clinicians and a lot of wait times, for those, um, particularly if you go through the public system, but also for the private system as well.
4: And I guess a cost comes with that as well if you're in the private system?
12: Yeah, so it can be several thousand dollars to get a full um, developmental workup for a child.
4: How much... Uh, what, what sort of difference are we talking about in terms of time lag between the uh, public system and the private system if you don't have I that don't, couple of thousand yeah, dollars?
12: Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't actually no we're so we're actually looking at that at the moment as part of our project, and there's not a whole lot of recent data on that from australia but um the the reports that we get anecdotally from families I can tell you that they're through the public system they're waiting twelve to eighteen months um and uh, it's a, it tends to be a bit shorter for private um practice, so it could be anywhere between six weeks and six months so yeah there's a lot of there's a broad range there.
4: That's a um, a big difference, isn't it? <laughs> if you've uh, I- identified something that you want to get onto with your child waiting 12 to 18 months, um, sounds yeah, like a bit of a nightmare.
12: Thing. Yeah, we also know that um, early intervention is really critical, so any time-saving that we can do um, to get interventions earlier um, is a big win. Um, but what uh, NDIS has done is um, changed its model a little bit so that um, you can apply for funding for um, to sort of behavioural uh, difficulties, and so while you're still waiting on that diagnosis, our families can still access some of that funding now.
4: Well, that's good to know. So in terms of your investigation, um, you've been given $2.5 million by the federal government, so a pretty big sum of money uh, yeah. to undertake this project. You must be very excited to I to have that green excited. light. <laughs> Why yeah. is the investigation so significant? Why have you been given all this money?
12: So at the moment... Um, The diagnosis, the diagnostic process for a child with autism and ADHD, as we mentioned, is quite messy. So, uh, it's, um, we're trying to find better markers of autism and ADHD, more objective markers. Um, so we, at the moment, as I mentioned, we need three sort of expert clinicians to come together and create, like, have a consensus on what that child's diagnosis is. But if we can find some genetic or brain markers that might give us a really clear indicator that that child has a particular diagnosis and that will dramatically reduce uh, wait times, it will reduce burden on the public health system um, and it will also give us better um, uh, a better idea of what uh, treatments a child will respond to. So there will be cost and time savings across the board <laughs> with the, that's the blue sky idea for a project like this.
4: So at the moment, is there just a sort of a sense that there might be a gene there or are you what what level of um, understanding do you have at the moment
12: Um, so it's likely that there are for each individual there are lots of um, different genes that are um, all playing a part in that child then having a neurodevelopmental condition like autism or ADHD they're they're just the two most common um, neurodevelopmental disorders but there are lots out there Um, and Yeah so it's likely to be lots of small mutations that um, give rise to it rather than one gene that is responsible.
4: So how do you go about finding all that out?
12: (laughs) So what we do, it's a great question. Um, So we're working together with other large um, studies so we're collaborating with the E-AIMS study in Europe which is the largest funded study for any psychiatric disorder in Europe um, which is huge, and so and there's another, um, there's also the Psychiatric Genetics Consortium, which is another big group where, and we all pull our genetic samples together because what we need to find these genetic recurrent kits. so these um, gene markers, is we just need lots and lots of um, numbers, lots of individuals taking part, and um, and what we can do um, in our case is that we're also collecting parents and um, siblings as well, so we'll collect genetics from the whole family so we can see and it gives us um, a few extra tools in our belt to see how genes are being passed down from parents to child and it gives us a little bit more sensitivity in, in finding these genes.
4: And you can do all that from a saliva sample?
12: Yes we can, yep. And um, we are aware of a lot of some of the other concerns around data privacy and um, with regards to genetic information, so all of ours is de-identified and and so whenever we do data sharing we're very conscious of that Um, and so we, um, you know, there's no identifying information when we pull genetic samples with other studies.
4: And how does the ADHD fit in with the study? Are you um, asking mm. for people that have already got a diagnosis of autism and or ADHD or both?
12: Yes, so there's a lot of overlap between the two disorders. They're around half of kids with autism also have ADHD and vice versa. And this is just another complicating factor for clinicians and families in working out what treatment might be best. We don't really know a whole lot about kids who have both conditions. Um, And so uh, that they're a real target um, for research for us in particular. And so we're looking for families who have a child with autism or a child with ADHD or a child who have both and some of them already have a diagnosis and some of them have been to see their pediatrician and they're under under clinical investigation to see what's happening and they're also welcome to take part in our study too. So um, yeah, they're the main, um, main kids that we're looking for.
4: And you're also um, going to be looking at children who don't have signs of either of those um yeah so so we
12: really want to understand the boundary um between um when a child needs a diagnosis and when they don't um it's a big community concern that we're aware of um of what we call over pathologizing um typical development um are we you know giving labels to kids that don't really need them so what we're trying to find out is um uh, yeah where when when does a child need a diagnosis what's typical development and atypical development and to do that we do need a really big group of typically developing children so children who don't have any history or diagnoses or anything like that to take part in our research it's really important
4: absolutely and how are you going with the numbers are you still looking for people to participate
12: absolutely so this um This project will be going for the next five years um, and we're in what we call an open recruitment phase at the moment, so we're taking all comers, so typically developing children or neurotypical children and um, kids with ADHD and autism and both and everything in the middle.
4: Okay, and I've got some uh, information numbers that I'll... um give at the end uh, if anyone is interested. Uh, Just a couple of final questions. I just wanted to um, to mention the parent experience. Um, Mm. There's been a lot of noise around uh, the new podcast, Two P's in a Podcast, which um, is uh, two mums talking um, about their experiences uh, in a very um, everyday manner of being a parent of a child with a disability. And Mandy yeah. Hose, uh, one of the co-creators, she talks about the silent community of parents of children with mm. a disability. Is this the sense you've received talking to parents of children with ADHD and autism?
12: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of um, very exhausted families out there. Um, there's also the, what comes quite often with autism and ADHD is um, sleep disturbances, so not only are parents dealing with very challenging behaviour, but their child and the parents are also quite often very sleep-deprived, which is an extra factor. And the other thing, too, is that for many families, um, managing their child's behaviour means that they have to... Limit the work that they do so they can be available for their child or take them to appointments. Um, and so parents often miss out on lots of things um, that other people take for granted, and so then there can be a layer of, um, you know, less access to resources and um, less financial security that comes with that too.
4: And I can imagine that some of the areas, um, the behavioural areas, uh, presenting differently with each um, individual might also mean that. Um, if you're trying to share your your experience with another friend or family member that you might also get hit with a response, oh yeah, my kid forgets things too or yeah, my child doesn't want to do his homework. So it's pretty hard to sort of quantify this sort of, um, these behavioural things unless they're very extreme. Yeah, so that
12: certainly happens a lot more with ADHD. ADHD is one of those things that, um, you know, when you see refusal to do homework in a child with ADHD it's much more extreme like you hear that and you're like oh that doesn't sound so bad but when you see it in action you're like oh that's what they're talking about and there is a real minimisation and silencing particularly of the ADHD community but it also happens in autism as well and so parents can end up feeling really isolated
4: and exhausted if they're um, acting as the uh, case manager, the taxi driver ferrying kids around yeah uh, and it creates
12: a lot of Mm, A lot of stress on um, marriages as well, and so families who have a child with a neurodevelopmental condition can um, often um, end up um, getting divorced and things like that, which adds another strain as well.
4: Yeah, really hard work. Um, Well, there's lots more I'd love to talk to you about. We might have to have you back, Um, but thank you so much for speaking this morning, and we um, really look forward to the results in, I believe, 2022. Um, and hopefully um, cutting down on diagnosis time and frustration for a lot of families um, with some more clarity. So yeah, thank you so
12: much for having me on.
4: Thank you, Beth. Thank okay. That was Dr Beth Johnson from the Turner Institute at Monash University um, talking about her work on the Magnet Project. Um, and if you've got a child that... Uh, has a diagnosis or is neurotypical and you'd like to participate um, you can get in touch with them by the internet, uh, facebook www.facebook.com forward slash the magnet project forward slash or www.monash.edu slash turner dash institute forward slash research forward slash project dash magnet
0: and those will be on our, on our rundown, on our website. <coughs>
3: sorry, excuse me. And on Friday, I attended a demonstration uh, held out the front of the federal court um, in support of the Tamil family being detained on Christmas Island. Uh, so Priya and Nardis came to Australia seeking asylum. Um, they settled in Biloela, Queensland, where they had their two daughters, Priya, uh, sorry, Kapika and Theronika. Uh, NADAs worked at the local abattoir and by all accounts they were really valued and loved members of the local community Um, They were then taken to a detention centre in Melbourne in March 2018 um, and they've since been held on Christmas Island since uh, late last year Um, So they've now spent almost two years in detention trying to wade through legal red tape um, and all these ridiculous levels of bureaucracy um, and people are getting really fed up Um, So on Friday at the demonstration, we all sang songs, um, some favourite songs of the two daughters. Um, We heard from their family friend Brad and another man speaking. Um, So we're going to hear a little bit of audio from the demonstration on Friday, and then I'm going to have a chat to Brad about how the case went on Friday.
13: Almost two years to the day, uh, in a a week or so, um, since Nardis and Priya and Godmica and were ripped from their home in Biliwila in the early hours of that uh, March morning and uh, taken from a life that they knew and brought uh, here to Melbourne where they uh, were held in immigration detention. I still remember meeting Nardis and Priya for the first time there in, in Mitra Detention Centre and uh, there was a, just a sense uh, then of shock and disbelief at what had happened and a great uncertainty um, about what, what kind of future they faced and for the two years since they've carried that uncertainty that uh, just uh, gnaws at them and um, it's like a, it's been like a dark cloud that's, that's hung over them uh, for that whole time not common sense to rip a young family away from their community. It's not common sense to incarcerate a young family that hasn't done anything wrong. It's not common sense to spend twenty seven million dollars of taxpayer money keeping this family locked up when they could be home in Villa um, contributing to community, contributing to Australia's economy. As we know, Nardis uh, was a valued worker at the Meatworks and Priya and the girls are valued members of their their community. This is the life they've been ripped away from. These are people that are are contributing to Australian life, and yet we're denying not only them the opportunity to do that, we're denying Australia the opportunity to uh,
2: embrace uh, this beautiful family. April last year, I, invoking a particular section of the Commonwealth Health and Safety Act, I wrote a please prosecute letter to Comcare, the Federal Equivalent Work Safe, and a month or so later, Comcare started investigating. The alleged defence was failing to proactively and preventatively safeguard the health, including the physical and psychological health, of this family and in particular the failure to provide proactive dental care for for the youngest one and I enclosed photos Uh, so June last year Comcare starts investigating of course Home Affairs Australian Board of course know that Uh, but in August as Fred mentioned a few months later what do they do they commit apparently the same offence by exiling them to Uh, Christmas Island, which is so obviously not protecting their psychological health, it is aimed at destroying it. So far, Compaire has not prosecuted. But it's very interesting that the Home Affairs, knowing they're under investigation, contemptuously and cruelly recommit that same apparent offence.
3: And that was some audio from the demonstration I attended on Friday. Uh, we're now going to speak to Brad Coth, who was the first man you heard speaking there. Good morning, Brad, and welcome to Monday Brekkie.
14: Good morning. How are you going?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining us today.
14: Yeah, you're welcome.
3: Now, on Friday, uh, you were gathered with a group of people outside federal court in Melbourne uh, to show support for Priya, Nardis, Kapika and Therinka. Um I realise you were there as a friend and an advocate, not as a lawyer, um, but can you give us a brief rundown of what this particular hearing was about and how it went?
14: Yeah, sure. Um, th- this hearing um, was to do with their youngest daughter, Dranica, who um, has uh, n- never to this point had the opportunity to actually make a claim for asylum herself. Um, so what they're testing is uh, whether yeah, whether she'll be allowed to um, make that claim and have it heard and assessed um, through the, the normal channels.
3: And this was the first step in that process then?
14: Yeah, that's right. So, so um, uh, yeah, this was the first day. There's, uh, they'll be back at court on Tuesday and, and quite possibly it, it may uh, um, go further than that uh, as well.
3: And um, theoretically, if uh, does uh, is able to make a claim, could that affect uh, the claims for the other three members of the family?
14: Well, uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, 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 as I understand it, um, it won't affect um, their claims that have already been assessed, but um, I, I, I uh, do understand that, that they won't, you know, if... if veronica makes a successful claim then the uh, the family would would stay together i would presume and uh, and she'd be allowed to stay here
3: and how did it go on friday or is it still too soon to say
14: yeah that you're right it is uh, too soon to say um, basically there's there's uh, the government lawyers um, have uh, want to put some more evidence uh, on the case that hadn't been um, included in in the uh, sort of the briefing, so so um, uh, that's why it's been sort of put off till Tuesday to allow um, you know both sides to to know um, what what they're dealing with, and uh, they'll go from there.
3: Sure. And will you be demonstrating on Tuesday? Will there be people there again?
14: Um, yeah. Look, uh, there'll be people there. I, I think uh, quite caught up with. Uh, Uh, exactly what's going to be happening in terms of demonstration, but I'd I'd say there'll be a presence um, there outside
3: the court. Excellent. And you're a um, family friend of uh, the family?
14: Yeah, that's right. So I I got to know um, the family um, through uh, visiting in immigration detention um, in Mitre in Broadmeadows. Uh, I've been a long-time visitor there and and, uh, uh, met them when they first were brought to to MITRE in uh, March of 2018 and have been sort of visiting throughout their time um, in Melbourne and uh, yeah, gotten to know them and journey with them a little bit uh,
1: while they've been
3: uh, yeah, in, in there. And yeah, the whole process has been um, pretty dehumanizing. Can you tell us about the people behind the story? What are they like?
14: Yeah, look, this, um, yeah, this is just a gorgeous family. Uh, actually, I mean, from my perspective, um, when you're when you're visiting people in detention, um you you only really are able to to sort of uh, sit around a table in a, a big visitor's center and um yeah you know chat and and uh, drink tea and, and play games um but uh you know spending time with this family um their their little girls are, although um, when I first uh, met them they were um not quite one and three years old, and um, just full of life, full of full of um, uh, you know sort of uh, uh, vitality, um, and yeah, it's it's been really sad, you know, seeing uh, seeing um, you know this whole process um, just take a real toll uh, mentally and emotionally and physically as well um, on the family
4: and have you
3: had much contact with the family in recent times do we know how they're doing
14: yeah look I spoke to priya um, a couple of times over this last week yeah um, it's tough I mean they're they're on Christmas island obviously um, it just the biggest issue for them is just the isolation that they have from uh, community life um, and the you know the, the friends and support that they've um uh, you know obviously they've had in their home community of billilla um but it, even to a lesser extent uh here in melbourne um uh, as well thankfully uh their um their their eldest girl uh Gopika, has been able to start school there um but it's yeah it's just for the for Priya and Nardis, it's just been terribly isolating, and uh, just being denied that, um, you know, contact with other adults. Um, yeah, it's very difficult.
3: And do we know much about the conditions themselves on Christmas Island?
14: Um, yeah, look, I I, I haven't been uh, to Christmas Island, so I can't speak first hand sure. uh, there. Um, but from what I've what I've heard, I know their their lawyer was was there. Um, only in the last week or two, um, and yeah, very basic from what I understand, and and um, uh, I understand that they're they're sort of all you know, pretty much sleeping in the same room and and even in the same bed. Um, yeah, so certainly conditions are not ideal for a family.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
14: yeah, yeah.
3: Um, And, yeah, as I said, I'm far more interested in the people behind this story rather than the statistics. Mm. I think it's wrong on an ethical or moral level. Um, But you did say one statistic on Friday that really shocked me. Um, It kind of goes to show it's also completely illogical and kind of highlighted the absurdity of it. Um, How much is it costing the government to keep this family away from Wheeler and on Christmas Island?
14: Mm. Well, the figures that I had were were $27 million, uh, which... um yeah, obviously just seems absurd to uh, keep them there when um it it, it just uh, you know it seems that there's there's no real reason why they can't be um either here in Melbourne uh, or even better um in their in their home in Billa Willa while this process goes goes through. It's uh, yeah it just seems ludicrous that, yeah,
3: absolutely, that, uh, and they're yeah. clearly very wanted and missed. Um, Yeah,
14: yeah, that's right.
3: All right. Well, that's, um, I'm afraid, all we've got time for. But thank you so much for joining us, Brad. Really appreciate it.
14: You're welcome. All the best.
3: That was Brad Coth, a family friend and advocate for the Sri Lankan family uh, being held on Christmas Island. And a thank you to all our guests from today. It's been a really great show. Uh, Tune in next week for Monday Breakfast. And for now, stay tuned to Women on the Line.
4: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller
6: and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. <laughs>